This is all content. It's, it's exactly. It's all content. Yeah. So listeners, Max is where he got married and I co-officiated his wedding in this northern Italian town on the border of Switzerland that's filled with German tourists, right? Yeah. And German retirees as well. And I'm going to try and thread the needle in terms of pronunciation between correctness being pretentious and sounding like shit, but it's Pino sulla Sponda del Lago Maggiore. Lago Maggiore. You know, Lago Maggiore. Lago Maggiore is what German people call it. I'm actually on the streets in this small town because uh, I had to flee from the house because there's too much. There's either kids sleeping or too much going on everywhere. And there's actually a fair amount of traffic, more than you would think kind of on this mountain road winding through the forest and there's been three cars going by already and i actually just got a video of you officiating our wedding no uh, way photos and videos were promised and better late than never it was five years ago it's mostly you so i don't know if they edited it and uh, you know kept the good parts but um <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's mostly you doing the officiating in the video so if frau godsinger Here's this podcast. You'll yeah. have held up, eh? He was chill. He yeah. was this like Lutheran, older, retired pastor from Anna's youth in Stuttgart, Anna being Max's wife. Yeah, when we, we had to go have a meeting with him where we talked about like what we wanted to include in the whole ceremony. And at some point we were talking about the Jewish parts we would include. And we started discussing, and I'm already talking to him in German, um, which my German is not that strong. And then he just, we're talking about the Bible, and he pulls out a book, opens it up, and it's Hebrew. And he starts like reading, like pointing out <laughs> stuff to me. And I'm like, <laughs> like, and he thought that I would be able to read it too. And I had to yeah. tell him, no. He was just gangsta like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's weird yeah, because like... Right. In Italian, like, the word for Jew is ebraico, like a Hebrew, you know? I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's not German, Juden, but, like, the Hebrews, they must all speak Hebrew and read it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one might for believe. Sure. So how have you been doing? It's been a while. Uh, I've been doing great. I was in charming Oxnard. Do you know what Oxnard is? Oxnard is... It's not... <laughs> okay, so Oxnard... Oh, someone's from there. Someone famous is from there, like some ska punk band or something. But what's that? What's the Danish town that's... Oh, Solvang. Solvang. Yeah, it's, it's like kind that? of in that direction, yeah. So it's on like the coast between here and Santa Barbara, closer to Santa Barbara. And Anderson Pack is either from there or nearby. Like one of his albums is called Oxnard and the other is called Ventura, which is the like nicer neighboring town. And the county. And the county, Cuba. yeah. The county north of L.A., and um, it's actually, the beach is beautiful, but it was the play, the site of this reunion. And it's just, it has this like onomatopoeia quality to it. Like, I mean, if you came from outer space and someone said Malibu, you would like picture Malibu. And yeah, someone says Oxnard friendly, and you picture like community. Yeah. 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 Beachfront community. Yeah. Oxnard sounds like a s inferior part of the anatomy of a bovine. Oh, yeah. Literally. Oxnards. Yeah. For sure. Oh, that's the thing? Okay, nards. Rocky Mountain, well, yeah, Rocky Mountain oysters. So a nard is like nuts? Yeah, you never used that as a kid, nards? Like, it's you been... me in the nards. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Oh, my God. That's amazing. No wonder. <laughs> yeah. All right. No, things are good here. Getting a lot of good, good energy from the pod. The pod is spreading far and wide. It's out there. It's like, well, we appreciate you, listeners. 
We value you that much more because there's fewer of you. (laughs) You know, we're trying to strike a lot of balances here. And I think it's funny to begin with the pronunciation of this tiny Italian town that you're in, because we don't want to be like these pretentious, oh, here's all these like fancy terms. But at the same time, we are trying, I feel like we're trying to like smuggle things out of the Museum of Academia and like put them on the street corner next to like the knockoff cell phones. You know, and and make it visible. You don't have to have a museum membership. And so, but it might have a musty, a musty museum smell to it sometimes because that's where it's been, this knowledge has been sitting for thousands of years. For sure. Yeah, you got to deal with the smell, but it's worth it. (laughs) I'm at a cemetery, by the way. On that note. They love their fallen World War I heroes in Italy. Everywhere you go, you see it's a, it's a street that's named after someone who fell in World War One. It's very interesting. They have monuments all over the place. Because, like, was Italy that consequential in World War One? I? I know they were on, like, the it Allies side, I think. They, oh, Jesus. It was complicated. But in the end, they were fighting on the Allies' side, for sure. And they were fighting against Austria-Hungary, you know, around here. I think they whooped Austria-Hungary pretty good. Way to go, Italy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, And that's why they were so, I mean, that was uh, one of the contributing factors to the rise of fascism is that they didn't get what they expected out of being on the winning side because they had So it's the opposite of Germany where it's like, we were pissed that we lost. Yeah. And they wanted, what they wanted was, I think, a lot of kind of like the Dalmatian coast. So it's now in Croatia on the coast, which if you go there, you can still see the Italian influence there parts of Albania, things like that. They wanted to build this kind of almost Grecian, like across the, like have their little sea in the Adriatic and like have a, have Italy go across that sea. But they didn't get it and they were mad. Thus, bring Thus. about Mussolini. Yeah. So, should we get going? Yeah, I've already finished my, my beer. Yeah, we're going to talk about romanticism. Um, so in this segment kind of a light summer treat for everyone. Many people are on summer vacation, except for in the Midwest where I come from, people start school like August negative 30th for some reason. People start like so early. It was horrible. But um, people in sanely governed regions of the country are you know, on their vacations. Because the parents all had to go back to work on their farms, right? Is that really why? No, I was just... Trying to That's, say you're all farmers. I mean, yeah, because I feel like when I was a kid, they just kept rolling it back earlier and earlier. And yeah, yeah not not into it. I'm a Memorial Day, Labor Day guy. Keep it simple. Mm, that's a good um, model. Great model. No radical departures there. So Max and I actually were talking about trips to Europe. And unlike the hoity-toity elites of yore, or actually exactly like them, we both went to Europe, I guess, for the first time in like our like college years. Yeah, we weren't brought over to Paris and Rome when we were in short pants, you know, to like go to the Louvre and the Prado and Madrid when we couldn't appreciate it. No short pants, no like shopping trips to London. I have a friend who I hope hears the call out to her bat mitzvah present in that. (laughs) We're salt of the earth. We're so, yeah, we're so real and so legit. And, (laughs) um, you know, basically that's it. So straight from the streets, uh, we took our grand tours. And so what is a grand tour? At some point in your life, if you've been to, especially to Italy, the tour guide might start to take you to sites where really famous romantic poets like Lord Byron and Percy Bysshe Shelley. Do you know how to say that? 
I Is anyone else? Yeah, it's like Flash? Lord Byron came here and he had sex with like teen women and 400 boys. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, what's the deal with that? And in uh, there's a, a really beautiful part of Italy in the south, just south of Naples, called the Amalfi Coast. And there's these giant villas. They seem like super, you know, they're symmetrical and there's like Greek statues on a path of roses overlooking like enormous cliffs of the Mediterranean and it's dope. And that all started at a certain point, right? That wasn't just a thing that everyone was always doing forever. At some point, people, particularly in the what Walter Scott called rude and frozen north, cold ass England type Scottish people were like, man... It's pretty cold here. And also, yeah. I've been reading a lot of books about Italy and Greece, where apparently civilization was kicking ass at Western civilization's beginning. And I want to go see those things. And so they started going to Europe. I mean, I feel like the origins of this are really like 18th century, uh, kind of neoclassical period. And of course, a yeah. lot of the stuff that they wanted to see wasn't really there anymore. So there was this kind of recreation of classical beauty in the form of gardens and sculptures and museums collecting the or in other cases kind of refabricating objects from the classical past they they wanted to go and see the ruins because they were pretty and also they were all dying of tuberculosis and it was supposedly good for their lungs that's also true. That comes into this. Yeah, John Keats does die of tuberculosis in Rome, and there's this place, the Keats House, where Lord Byron, I mean, I mean, he did die of an infection ultimately, but you got to give him props. They, he said he slept with like 300 people in Venice. He's in the house where Keats dies of tuberculosis, and he doesn't get it. You know, that's, that's pretty tight. They show that. They show the whole thing in uh, the movie Bright Star, which came out a few years ago. About, which is about um, Keats, right? Yeah. And his and his uh, love affair with someone named Fanny, um, and they show him. There's a kind of interlude in Rome when he dies, and they're kind of like hanging out on the Spanish Steps, which seems unrealistic. But was it is and, is it near the Spanish Steps? Oh, it's you, right. Yeah, when you get to the bottom of the Spanish Steps, turn left. Second building on your left is is the Keats House. Okay, so um, it's actually totally totally realistic. Totally okay. real, cynical <laughs> yeah. Max, and it's actually interesting because Keats of of the there's six major English romantic poets. Keats is the youngest of them, and he's actually the one who spends the least time in Europe, but he gets the house. And I'll get to that story. But basically, English romanticism, the movement of ideas that affected you know, all of the arts. So I'm going to give props to uh, a friend of mine, John Posen. He convinced me when we were in college to take this English romantic poetry class. And I was like, why? And he's like, romanticism has the most outsized influence of any movement ever on, on our world. I don't know how he knew that then. He claims to know many things, but he was right about this. <laughs> yeah. No, I do think that in a lot of ways, the romantic movement did shape our idea of what art should be. Absolutely. Art, you know, just a lot of basic ideas that are even Meaning, still meaningful life. Life oh, should be meaningful, like yeah. nature is pure and it's authentic. Cities are overwhelming. Sometimes you want to get away ruins, from that. Uh, ruins are nice to look at. Ruins are inspirational and nice. Yeah. And the people in the past, they had something magical. And like, we got to try to figure out what that is. Also peasants, also foreigners. So if you've ever caught yourself thinking 
ooh, like idyllic, you know, wonderful thoughts about peasants, exotic foreigners, or people from a long time ago, or indigenous peoples, or whatever. That your is derivative. Only, you're only thinking that because of romantic poetry, and that makes it worth thinking about and, and studying because it still shapes the thoughts that pop up in our heads today. So I was going to just give like a little tour of some of these guys and where they went. Can I just say really quick, just a yeah. very quick definition of romanticism is that it, it, especially in the visual arts, it was a reaction against neoclassicism and it emphasized individual subjectivity. It emphasized emotional states, the authenticity of the moment, nature, things like that, as opposed to transcendent harmonies and and balance and yeah abstraction well not abstraction they didn't quite have that yet but um yeah abstract ideas truth truth was what neoclassicism was after in the visual arts and like kind of authenticity was what romanticism was after in 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 painting at least yeah no totally and like a big thing i remember i had a really good high school english teacher mrs buckles laugh if you will it's a funny name mrs (laughs) buckles (laughs) <laughs> there you go. And uh, Mrs. Buckles was like, in high school, we teach you all the movements in terms of like, this was a reaction to that. and It was the opposite. And then when you go to college, all your professors will tell you that it's like not quite so simple and there was more overlap and, you know, but like a really good well, way. It's like of inter- dialectic. They take, they take some aspects from what came before, but they synthesize it with some reaction to it. Yeah. Good. That's concise. And yeah. yeah and like one of those dialectics would be if, Neoclassicism, it's about going and observing the world in a kind of neutral, scientific, rational way. So kind of any observer should see the same thing. Romanticism would be like, it's about the impressions the world leaves on your inside, on your spirit, on your soul, and on your emotions. And that's Natural de- supernaturalism. Deeply subjective. Oh, what yeah. do you mean natural supernaturalism? That's the book that I was supposed to read for my orals, which is about romanticism that Martin Jay said I should read. But yeah, it's like uh, natural. You take the naturalism, but then you add some supernaturalism to it, and you've got romanticism. Oh, cool. Yeah. And uh, romanticism can be, like, credited or blamed for all kinds of things, like French Revolution, everything from, like, fascism to, like, revolutionary left. But I'm talking about tourism. I'm talking about summer vacation. (laughs) So through giving you some summer vacation, I'm like your travel agent audience, and I'm going to give you some kind of itineraries. And through these itineraries, introduce you to some of the main personalities of the romantic poetry. So uh, there's, like, the big six. And what's interesting is, the oldest one of the, these big six poets, he is born before the rest of them and dies after the rest of them. That's William Blake. The next one's Wordsworth is a little younger than Blake, born a little after and dies a little before him. And it, accordions like that, such that Keats is born last and dies first. Does that make sense? Oh, it's like Russian dolls. Yeah, sure. It's like, it's like Russian dolls. It's crazy like that. So you got Blake. We'll put Blake aside. He's sitting naked in like a country house with his wife, having visions, literally having visions of you know he angels. He did the and drawings, and he did the drawings, the illustrations of the Book of Job, right? He did do those, and he also illustrated this whole like fantasy series of he like basically invented a religion that builds off of to him it's Christianity, but to him he he believed he was a prophet, had all these visions and and drew them up into these crazy books that are images and texts. But we're actually putting Blake to the side. He's on his porch naked. Leave him there. You don't want to see that. And the two dudes who kind of really give the movement an 
explicit ideology are William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and they're best friends. And Wordsworth is way more productive. Coleridge gets like addicted to opium and basically works on this epic work his whole life that he never finishes, and he was constantly constipated, which is apparently a side effect of opioid addiction. Um, so your so Coleridge, your Coleridge, and I'm Wordsworth. Uh, okay, okay. I, I've always wanted to be Coleridge. <laughs> like to think I'm more productive. But yeah, I'm constantly <laughs> thinking about transcendence. And no, I just wanted to own you. I'm not actually that productive either. So. No, it's cool. It's cool. You're you're a worldly man. And so the two of them leave the big city, I think London, and they go to this area in England called the Lake District, which is kind of north central England, which is like really, really pretty. And they're like, oh, man, this is so pretty. And they have all these tight thoughts about nature. And they write a book of poetry together called Lyrical Ballads. And My favorite kind of ballads. Go ahead. The Lyrical Ballads. Yeah. yeah. This is way more like joke insertable than than your fucking thing. They go to other beautiful parts of England. If you've ever read a, a poem called Tintern Abbey, it's kind of like all of romanticism is kind of in that poem. It really is the launching of, of the movement. And that's about a destroyed medieval abbey, like where monks live in a tiny town in Wales called Tintern. And I've been there actually and hiked around there and it's super beautiful. And so it's, you know, it's about ruins, it's about the past, it's about the beauty of nature. Can you ever access the past again? So that's kind of Romanticism 1.0. Romanticism 2.0 is these other guys who are friends, which is Lord Byron and Percy Shelley. Mm -hmm. And Percy Shelley's wife, Mary Godwin, who then takes his name as Mary Shelley, the writer of Frankenstein. Yeah, and, and her parents were both radical philosophers, too. Yeah, Mary Wollstonecraft was her mom, and Charles Godwin was her dad, radical philosophers. And they uh, had a big influence on the guy who becomes her husband, Percy. And yeah. Percy Shelley and Lord Byron are aristocrats by birth, and they they both have kind of interesting literary, literary itineraries that I'll tell you about. The last one's Keats, and I'm going to leave Keats out also. Keats is not an aristocrat by, by, by birth. He's kind of more interesting. He's self-taught. But he's a physician whose brother's dying of tuberculosis. He gets it. He dies like super young. So we'll just put Keats aside for now and talk wow. about Byron and, and Shelley. It's sad. Um, it's sad. It's sad. well. So, but what's tight is there's a movie, Bright Star. Everyone likes the movie version of <laughs> yeah, yeah. literature. Another movie, Max. Have you ever seen The Trip with? Um, mm, yes, Steve where they Cooper? go up. Yeah, yeah. They saw the first one. They follow this itinerary. It's like these two comedians in England, Steve Coogan and another guy whose name I don't remember. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The whole point is that he's not as famous. Yeah. And they kind of play like lightly fictionalized versions of themselves. It's on Netflix. And they go on this trip to the north of England and they are visiting bed and breakfast. And, and they're also kind of making a lot of references to Wordsworth and Coleridge. In the trip, too, they go to Italy and they kind of follow the itinerary of Byron and Shelley or itineraries. And there's a trip through where they go to Spain. I haven't seen that one. Um, but it's really funny, dry English humor, contemporary. It's like from recently. I recommend both of them. Yeah, they're um, both, uh, it's movies about how like everyone's a an asshole. Like you did the English <laughs> style. Yeah, okay. So, so let's, get, like to, food let's porn. get to the trips. Let's get to the summer Okay, here's trip. the trips, bro. Because they're, they're kind of up in, up in your zone. Um, yeah. So Byron's first big trip, he's 21 years old. And he goes to Europe. He goes a million dollars in debt because he's like living so large. 
that's in current dollars. But I, I looked it up from what it, what it had been. But it's cool because he writes this poem called Child Herald, which people think is autobiographical about him. And it's about like all these married women and unmarried women and unmarried young men that he's fucking everywhere. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. Child Herald becomes like, like a, birthright like, kind of. Yeah, birthright cl- classical Europe. And if you wrote a humorous epic poem about your birthright classical Europe trip and you got laid a lot, but there were no Jewish women trying to make you get married to those people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you would have a best instant bestseller. And that's what he had with Child Harold. And that comes out in 1812. Four years later, he leaves England forever uh, and he goes to Geneva. And in Geneva, he meets and starts hanging out with the Shelleys. And the Shelleys are really interesting because Percy Shelley... The way he rolled to Europe is he got expelled from Oxford in 1811. He's like 19. He'd already written two novels, you know, no big deal. He elopes with this 16-year-old woman, and they go to the Lake District, and they want to meet up with Wordsworth and Coleridge and, like, be inspired. But they fail to do that, and he ends up hanging out with this other romantic poet named Southie, who's really conservative. Uh, Shelley, there was a bunch of attempted assassination assassination attempts on him because he was distributing really? radical propaganda. And this is during the 18 So this is the Napoleonic Wars. England's at war with France, monarchy versus republic. And he's well, monarchy stirring up shit. Empire at that point. Empire. Yes. But just the uh, same, same idea. Same idea. So he's stirring up shit like everywhere he goes and, and like he's being spied on. So he eventually is like, yo, I got to get out of England. I, this should be a drunk history, by the way, but maybe they've already done it. And in 1814, so now he's 22, he elopes with two half-sisters. They're half-sisters to each other. One of them becomes Mary Shelley. And they go to France, Switzerland, and Germany. And he invites his previous wife to come too, but she declines. And one of those two sisters, the one who's not Mary Shelley, ends up sleeping with Byron and gets pregnant with the kid of Byron's. And so the four of them and some other people and some of their like retainers and servants and stuff are hanging out in Geneva. And that's where there's this famous one night. Shelley kind of starts like hallucinating that there's his wife's eyes are nipples and he says some weird shit like that. And Byron's like, ghost story time. Let's have a yeah. ghost story contest. And at that ghost story contest, Mary Shelley tells the story that becomes her famous novel, Frankenstein. The new Prometheus. Or the new Prometheus. Is that like the subtitle? And they're doing a lot of uh, lake chilling. And that's Max is on this giant lake in that borders northern Italy and southern Switzerland called Lago Maggiore, which is its famous neighbor is Lago de Como, where George yeah. Clooney is at. <laughs> yeah. But Lago Maggiore is equally beautiful, and they're on these kind of like alpine lakes too. This is foreshadowing. Do, do, do. Okay, don't spoil it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And in fact, they're already. So now people like the comedians in the movie The Trip, or like people who go to the Keats house for like five minutes in Rome, are tracing their steps, but they were actually tracing the steps of older poets. So Byron stayed in a house in 1816 on the shore of Lake Geneva. It's 1816. Lord Byron's like, I want to rent out this house. And that house was important because Milton, John Milton, the English poet, had stayed in it in 1639. So they already have this idea of like, I mean, what would you call that? Celebrity uh, tourism? Pilgrimage sites. Pilgrimage sites, kind of. I'm thinking in terms of like the the Beverly Hills maps of the stars, you know? Yeah, yeah. Shelley writes a a poem called Mont Blanc about the tallest mountain in Europe. 
And Byron writes, Manfred, he keeps writing sequels to Child um, Harold. Manfred is kind of like a Frankenstein story about this like Swiss Superman, like monster god person. And when I was taught this stuff, it was 2006 in the fall. And I remember our professor, Eric Gray, was like comparing Manfred, the subject of this epic gothic poem, to Roger Federer, and that he's like a deathless Swiss <laughs> Superman who like defies, you know, all the what you would think would be the rules of physics and nature. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, what's Roger crazy Federer as a religious experience. Yeah. Roger Federer. Okay, that was 13 years ago. Roger Federer, it was the U.S. Open in like two weeks. He's still fucking the man. How crazy yeah. is that? That is so crazy. Go I, Eric, was right? I was bummed out when he lost the final at the, Wimbledon. The Joker? Yeah. So, you know, stuff like that. Um, they're reading to each other. They're reading Faust. They're reading Rousseau. By the way, they're in their early 20s. That's also what's like an important thing to know. They're sleeping with each other and everyone, and it's like really cool like that. Everyone's pretty down. And... um. Lord Byron moves to Venice for a few years, and he writes kind of what some people consider his masterpiece, Don Juan, which is like a parody of the Don Juan story. Uh, so Don Juan is like this lover who like fucks everyone, and it was it was an opera by Mozart, I'm pretty sure, about this guy who like fucks everybody, and yeah. everyone knew that Lord Byron fucked everybody, and he's like, it's time for an autobiographical, cynical, satirical, sexy, pornographic comedic poem of great length about my exploits but they're kind of fictionalized and everyone's going to be playing this game it's like oh did he really do that like who's the him who's the woman and all these things but it it's a parody i'll get to the ends of their life lord byron had a club foot but he could swim and percy shelley could not swim and one day shelley he's still kicking around italy like a few years later northern italy like he's in Venice and Milan and Florence and Pisa, and he's taking a boat from Pisa to Livorno, and on the way back there's a storm and he drowns. And when his body washed up, his face had decomposed, but he had a copy of Keats's latest poems in his pocket. And Byron identified the body, and they burned the body on the shore of this lake. It's it's actually like a rather small place that I didn't write down where it was. But um, that and they go to that shore in the trip too. Byron lives for another uh, six years, and he writes Prometheus Unbound. Or no, wait, that's that's Shelley. Sorry, forget what Byron writes. Byron gets <laughs> caught up in the movement for Greek independence. Greece was yeah. had been part of the Ottoman I Empire. For I was waiting for that part. Okay, yeah. five hundred years. Take it from here. Take it home. No, I don't know. He shows up in Greece, and like they all fucking loved him. I don't know. How much he did, I think he was more kind of Osama bin Laden style. He's more of a money guy than a <laughs> battlefield uh, leader, right? I mean, he showed up and he helped and he publicized the cause. The cause. Yeah. Yeah. Much of what you said is true. He's a money guy. He's a publicity guy. He's one of the most famous people in all of Europe at this point. He's 30 in his early 30s. And he possibly one of the first cause celeb cause celebrities you know yeah yeah and there is this thing of like everyone's interested in the classical past and in the classical past greece is this like the beacon of civilization so why is it now like an ottoman backwater and so there's ideological and aesthetic reasons for they want he's been to greece he actually reads homer in greek in greece 
Um, Byron mm-hmm. does. That's like your typical classical education. But he actually, before he even gets to the battlefield, he's at like an encampment and like catches an infection and dies. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he never saw never saw hard combat. But to this day, tons of city streets in Greece are named after him. He's like a national hero in Greece. Because that six years later, Greece does win its independence, and it's the first country to become independent out of the Ottoman Empire, and that's slowly going to lead to the collapse of the empire in World War One about eight years later. So there's important political stuff going on. There's like mad Napoleon stuff. They're into Napoleon, but they're English, so that makes them real bad boys. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and that's how and that's how they do Italy, like um, the Romantics do Italy and Switzerland. Yeah. And that's kind of why that there's this trail that we now have to follow to see tight mountains and beautiful lakes, but also to like go see ruins in museums because that's you know Ode to a Grecian Urn. That's a romantic poem. You know, there Ozymandias, which is about. The Pharaohs is a poem written by Shelley after he goes to the British Museum. You know, so looking at great achievements of the past and how they've decayed and what does that say about beauty and about life and mortality, that's what we're kind of supposed to be doing when we go to other cities and see museums. Yeah, no, that there is a kind of sense that when people go, especially Americans of European heritage, go to Europe and that's the idea of, yeah, connecting to your heritage, but it's also like understanding it but it's also like yeah the the sense of wanting it to be picturesque aesthetically pleasing like the aesthetic element of it is super important right so it has to be beautiful so that's the way you connect to the history is through an aesthetic experience right and um oh, that's really interesting ruins, the way yeah, and that's yeah. worth repeating the way you connect to history is through an aesthetic experience Go yeah on. right and that's like a romantic idea and ruins i think are really key to that and i do remember like the times i've seen ruins i've I've always found them kind of they got built up in my mind so much you know before i saw them that when you go and see them finally they look almost smaller than you than you expect you know and i do think that the the whole kind of the romantic idea of coming to italy or going to greece uh and having this almost ecstatic uh, moment the, of connection. They write a lot about the disappointment too, though, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, they, I guess they do. I mean, like, look, this is all the bastardized popular version of it, and I, I'm not someone who has read much of the actual poetry, so I wouldn't know. That's actually really interesting. I didn't know that. Although I guess when I think about Ozymandias, it already, that's like one of the few poems I know. And like Ozymandias definitely does talk about that tension between the magnificence of ruins and also their desolateness. That even though even you know the king of kings, his accomplishments kind of fade away and get get covered up by the sands of time. Uh, something I read when I was here last time I was here a few years ago was Daisy Miller, which is a novella by Henry James, which is like a take on the Grand Tour from a later period in the early like 20, turn of the like, century you know, early 20th turn century of the century and that's a really interesting thing and I would, I would recommend people read that but um it's about naive americans going over to europe and a morbid view of what can happen there i would say although i guess what happens to daisy is kind of similar to what happened to uh, a few of our characters we've talked about today so yeah i, I don't know it's a, it's an interesting book people should read it 
Yeah, I mean, Max, you you reminded me also of some other American figures, like Jackie Kennedy goes to study in France. Like, that's kind of part of this. And then in recent, in Mad Men and in The Sopranos, the main characters go to Italy. And in Sopranos, it's in an, I think it's in the first or second season, and it's a really interesting like move that they do. I think it's the second season where Christopher is like... I'm going to Mount Vesuvius. I want to see those Roman, you know, uh, Pompeii, the you know the Roman city, and that's the first thing he says when he gets out of the the taxi from the airport. But he's a heroin addict, and he's in Naples, and he realizes he can score. And the whole time he's like, you know, I'm gonna get Adriana, his girlfriend, all these presents from the gift shop, and and in the end he like never leaves his hotel room and never goes to Pompeii. And from Naples, the mountain, Mount Vesuvius, is visible across the Bay of Naples, and you see it in all these shots, but but he never goes. And Tony eventually does go to some ruins, you know, and it's this whole thing. It's a, a lot about, like, what relationship do Italian-Americans have to Italy and to the classical period in Italy? And Like, he's fantasizing about having some um, mafia boss woman, and he's dressed up like a Roman general. Oh, yeah, Remember? that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to end this by reading the last stanza of Mount Blanc. How about that? It's short. Right. Mount Blanc, which is it. So is it in Switzerland or France? Don't ask me. These tall mountains are always on a border. Let's say it's the border between Switzerland and France. And readers, uh, readers, listeners, you can write in. Yeah. Readers, you can listen in. Yeah. Mount Blanc yet gleams on high. The power is there. The still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds, and much of life and death. In the calm darkness of the moonless nights, and the lone glare of day, the snows descend upon that mountain. None beholds them there, nor when the flakes burn in the sinking sun, or the starbeams dart through them, winds contend silently there, and heap the snow with breath, rapid and strong, but silently. Its home the voiceless lightning in these solitudes keeps innocently and like vapor broods over the snow. The secret strength of things which governs thought and to the infinite dome of heaven is as a law inhabits thee. And what were thou and earth and stars and sea if to the human mind's imaginings silence and solitude were vacancy? Lovely. So, lovely. You know, it's like... Is silence nothing? Is the silence of no one up there on top of that mountain nothing or something? Think about it. I will think about that. In the meantime, you 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 think about that too, listeners. I'm reading a book. It's more like an essay. It's only 80-something pages um, by a German <laughs> professor named Byung-Chul Han, and it's called Psychopolitics. And I think that people should check it out. It's pretty interesting. If you think of, you know, the way people talk about the internet and neoliberalism and how everything is fucked up now, all of those kind of criticisms that people make of the internet and the way we live our lives now and the way tech is impacting the economy, economic relations, power relations, all of that stuff, it's kind of putting that, synthesizing all that and putting it in a philosophical register. So he's basically operating within the tradition of critical theory. So he's like a philosopher? He's a philosopher, yeah. There's a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about from this book, and I think we might talk about it more later, about data and statistics and stuff like that. But there's something about the book that I thought was really interesting, and it's about this concept of neoliberalism, which is 
Well, what would you say neoliberalism is? If you had to give a definition of it, because this is always an interesting idea. People are always saying, what does neoliberalism mean? You know? Yeah. Yeah. You brought this up on an email thread that I thought we got going a little interesting, like right after Trump got elected, I think. But in a broad sense, it's just the modern form of liberal capitalism. So (laughs) I'm like trying not to go into like snarky definition, but like it's hard to give a sincere definition because you don't hear neoliberalism talked about by like conservatives or or moderates so much. You, You hear it talked about on the left as a term of critique or even a term of like abuse for the kind of ravages of our capitalist system with its, so what is, you know, limited government, individual rights, property rights, free markets, and the free markets thing and like the lack of government planning and regulation kind of becomes the thing that it's charged the most with, charged in the sense of held responsible for in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all, it's all right. And neoliberalism is a sandwich. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it is so. So I do think that from the left, it's used as a as a tool for criticizing liberals because to leftists, it represents the consensus between the center left and center right that mm-hmm. uh, like a free a totally free market ideology. So you had you know Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the 80s who were these crusaders um, reacting against the union power and for unleashing free markets. And then later on in the 90s, you had Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, who were liberals, but who took on most of the assumptions of this new form of liberalism, new form of free market ideology. So that's that's the way the left sees it. And I would say the best way to understand it is kind of as the ideology of late capitalism. So late capitalism is a system that we live under now. That's a system of economic relationships and and it's called late you know, in, the sense, in the sense of recent, right? Isn't that what that late comes from? That's a good question. I don't or is it also know. like this from the Marxist perspective of like, is, we're, the hour is late. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that's what I used it. to think. It's in the latter. Yeah, no, I think that's what it's supposed to mean, like that the, the, the contradictions are coming to the fore somehow. Um, mm. But in any case, neoliberalism can mean a few different things in different contexts. For example, and a lot of a lot of the time people use it, what they mean is like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. So like that takes a lot of free market ideas from the right. You know what I mean? But in this case, in the in the case of Hans' book, it basically means the entire. It means late capitalism. Basically, it means the economic system that we live under. So that's the way a lot of people use it. And what I noticed about what he the way he looked at neoliberalism is how distinct it is from everything that's come before it. So the whole book is kind of, he brings up arguments or concepts that should explain certain phenomena of our time and says, this is insufficient because it refers to an earlier form of economic relationships like biopolitics from Foucault or the shock doctrine from Naomi Klein those are all referring to like an earlier disciplinary society, whereas neoliberalism uses psychopolitics and uses, you know, um, it gets people to exploit themselves by telling them to be entrepreneurial and telling them to optimize themselves and self-help and all this kind of stuff, Tony Robbins, et cetera. 
the creative class and exactly um and so he says it's it's completely different so he says that the entire like form of exploitation that defines neoliberalism is auto exploitation exploiting yourself so it gets mm-hmm. it gets subjects to exploit themselves rather than uh, allo exploitation exploitation by others which is an earlier form of capitalism um, but the point is, he, he basically is making the argument that it's totally discontinuous. He doesn't really give a periodization, like, when did this begin? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. When does it switch into this? Because mo- also, by the way, biopolitics is a lot about the self. The, you yourself are the kind of jailkeeper for the system on yourself. Right. But what, what he's saying is that the, you know, you're, the, you're the jailkeeper of yourself, but that's a negative disciplinary Whereas in mm. this, it's like a positive, like you're going to be so happy if you work more and achieve more and optimize yourself. Can I do a little bit of like translation here? Yeah, sure. So w- when Max and I are talking about biopolitics, we're talking about this idea from Michel Foucault. I won't explain like the whole thing, but to the, our discussion right now is basically like the powers that be, whether it's government or whoever holds power, wants to exercise that power over your life. And so the idea is that they want to manage the way that your your health is managed, you know, so like get uh, vaccines and attend school and dress this way. And if you don't do those things, there's all these forms of disciplining you. That's why they call it a disciplinary regime. Um, but in the end, you're really responsible for that discipline and, and it gets internalized. So like you're the one who says, hey, if I don't wear like jeans in a, in a button-down shirt to, you know, when I go out, I will look like a freak. So I have to do, I have to wear that. And so you're afraid of yeah. this negative repercussion. And, and what you're saying is that this more recent form is more about incentivizing you with like positive treats and promises that you'll get by enslaving yourself to it. Exactly. Yeah. And so like biopolitics is associated with um, like industrial capitalism and, and also like statistics. So in, in the 18th century, when states realized the power of the state lies not only in like expropriating, appropriating, executing, things like that, they realized that it lies in control of our population and measuring the population and taking things the like, census. Yeah. Fertility, mor- fertility, mortality. Those would be the two key elements of it that you mentioned. Yeah. Inoculation, all these kinds of things that states started getting involved in, he's saying that's the keystone for like the modern state um, and modern capitalism. He is he, Foucault. He is Foucault. What what Han makes the argument is that he never he he basically missed his chance. Han he, is saying Foucault missed his chance. Exactly. Yes. Um, if he had lived longer, he if he had lived longer, he because he started talking about neoliberalism later on in his life. Han is saying Foucault missed his chance, and he would have if he had gone longer moved on to psychopolitics, which is rather than disciplining the body, worrying about fertility, mortality, capitalism or neoliberalism now uses psychology to manipulate people, which is an interesting idea. But I want to get back to the original idea, which is the the distinctness of neoliberalism as a period. Like, what do you think about that? I mean, there's a sense in which Neoliberalism is itself an ideology that destroys the past. There's mm-hmm. all this that stuff about like creative destruction, just like destroying everything in the name of more profit, almost like capitalism run completely amok 
with no respect for tradition or anything. But from his outside, supposedly outside critical standpoint, he's taking on almost like the standpoint of neoliberalism to, to historical times. Do you know what I mean? Because he's saying it's totally discontinuous with the past. And he's not admitting that there's any similarities between the way the world was in the 60s and the way it is now, assuming that the 70s and 80s would be like the turning point mm-hmm. into neoliberalism, which is, I, he doesn't say, but I have to assume that's when it was. So wait, so, wait let, me, let, me, let me stop you for a second. So yeah. neoliberalism says, or like implies at least, that it's completely a break from the past. And he's, what you're saying is that he accepts that claim. What neoliberalism does is it like it doesn't respect the past, doesn't respect tradition, and it runs riot over any kind of continuities with the past. It doesn't respect them. It's like, you know, Uber just says, well, what we're doing might be against the law, but we're just going to do it. And then the city has to deal with the city government has to deal with it. Then we'll put them on the back foot. You know what I so mean? Like pre- so yeah, pre existing like institutions are not given their due any or respect. something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, but, but that's different from being a critical, like having a critical point of view and saying that neoliberalism as a period of human history is completely distinct and nothing that came before has any analytical purchase in terms of understanding the way it works. Do you know what I mean? So you're saying that like what's missing is he's saying that there's not a lot of like layering of like other frameworks that have been used and that have applied before. The whole point of the book is like biopolitics is the way we understand the way power like creates subjects that are useful under capitalism. Right. And he's saying that's completely insufficient. It doesn't work that way anymore. Now it's all about Facebook likes and shares. You know, he's, I mean, he's basically saying that the smartphone has changed everything. It is yeah. completely different now. Whole lives have been changed by these technologies and that's just the way it is so so i'm on his side i haven't read the book but but that's like utterly convincing to me i mean i think it's stupid to to say that there's no you say analytical purchase like that there's no kind of place for some older analytical concepts to sink their teeth into and give us some you know useful critical thought you know like shock doctrine that book was like is that not even like it's maybe 10 years old 15 years old i don't know it's not that old but he's saying it's completely wrong he's saying like he's talking about shock therapy and he's like well she's wrong because she's talking about shock therapy that's disciplinary the modern world isn't disciplinary neoliberalism isn't disciplinary it's seductive yeah dude i'm with him i mean like (laughs) i mean this is pretty heady stuff you know so that's why i keep trying to like slow down all the all the terms that are kind of spinning in the centrifuge of the conversation um i can i say one thing can i say one thing okay so 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 the question is more the question is more to bring it back to the basic question is the period in which we're living completely distinct from four or five decades ago that's the question that i'm interested in if we assume that like neoliberalism exists and it is the system that characterizes our period how much is neoliberalism a growth or a development from what came before and how much of it is a radical break because i think that a lot of the crit- the crit- the critiques of neoliberalism kind of depend and focus really a lot on its radicalism right how mm-hmm. radically new it is mm-hmm. and you mentioned the creative class earlier 
And mm-hmm. what I notice is that when people, so the economic relationships under neoliberalism are one thing, right? The kind of cultural norms and discourses that characterize neoliberalism are something else. And what I notice is that it really seems to me like those cultural norms are restricted to the cultural class. Do you know what I mean? Or the creative class, whatever you want to call it. Give me an example, because I'm not sure what you mean. So I'm trying to think of something that isn't just relying on stuff I see on Twitter. Right. I mean, according to this, that would be perfectly legitimate, it sounds like. It's like a lot of stuff like, so take Fiverr, the website where you can, the freelancing website. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people posted about... Is that like TaskRabbit, but for... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But for more creative people, maybe. Um, A lot of people posted about their subway signs in New York, which were like, basically saying like, you're a striver. You drink coffee for breakfast and you drink coffee for lunch and you like work extra. And like, this is, this is the website for you. Like you're, Mm. you know, celebrating this kind of hustle ideology. Yeah. And so people are saying this is neoliberalism because it is, it's exactly what he's kind of saying. It's like saying it's actually good if you exploit yourself, if you put yourself into an exploitative economic relationship. And to me, that's like, it might be a distinctive kind of thing for our period, but it isn't characteristic of all of us. I do think the point I'm trying to make is that while Uber drivers and Fiverr freelancers and Amazon Fulfillment Center employees might be distinctive of our age in a way, they aren't the entirety of our age. And there's a lot of people Mm. still living in a world of the old old economy jobs, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. With critical theory, this happens a lot, I would say. They focus on the distinctive elements, like the outstanding elements that that Mm -hmm. kind of, if you look at them, they kind of crystallize everything, all the dynamics of a certain period or phenomena. And you kind of can see the whole spectrum of them. But that doesn't mean, just because they're interesting in that way, doesn't mean they describe the entirety of our social reality. And so that's what I'm trying to say is that I think that a lot of people, if you look at like globally, especially, Mm -hmm. are living under, are they living under neoliberalism? Or is it something that like people in cities who might be able to read those kinds of books are living under? Okay, let me hit you with a few things. Um, I think, you know, like the whole thing with let's I think Uber driver is a good example. So instead of being like, hey, you're a non-unionized contract worker who has like no benefits and, you know, retains a, a very minuscule proportion of the wealth that you generate for your company. You are and you're like setting your own schedule and you're just doing in this way you can start your own business that you've always wanted to do or like write your movie, that, you know, and like you're an entrepreneur. That thing, yeah. I think that like you're saying that that is a story and that's a true story, but it's like that's not everyone. And there's still some people who are like doing like, I don't know, like shit retail work at Sears or something. Yeah. Although, by the way, Sears is going bankrupt. I mean, I'm not an economist, obviously, like I what I know about like macroeconomics is from like basically like reading publications with the word New York in the beginning of them (laughs) or times, whatever, like, you know, so real economists might dispute this. But it seems like the data are in that the economic 
power has shifted to companies that do the type of exploiting this guy's talking about. And that even if that other stuff might exist, it's very much on the wane, like older forms of whether it's exploitation or just like other forms of sort of a worker's position in the economic production system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, you know, like, I mean, look at the companies that are going bankrupt and look at the companies that are having like crazy IPOs, you know, and that's okay. And, so that's the trajectory. And, I would say maybe, I shouldn't, have, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have focused on the actual economic relationships, because for me, it's even more the cultural kind of ideological elements of it that seem much Dude, more. I think that the, the creative class thing, I don't think is just sold to like upper middle class people who live in like San Francisco or coastal elite cities. I think the creative class thing, like multi-level marketing, you know, like those kind of pyramid mm. scheme mm. things, they're hitting, they're blanketing the country. They're like often very aggressive in really low income and minority areas. And they have the same ideology. Mm, yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. And, and, oh, by the way, in the global <laughs> South too. And, and so this idea of like, start your own thing and like be your own boss and like you can like strike it rich with that i think that that's taking place cross regionally cross like up and down the class ladder or whatever the question of how much of a departure it is i don't another question yeah i just don't know how it's completely a departure or it's somewhat of a departure i think the reason that that would be important is the reason you said is that is this critique now we're just thinking about the critique and not the phenomenon itself. Is this critique looking for like the most outlier examples, the things that jump out at you when you read the newspaper about a trillion dollar IPO for some company that relies entirely on like buzzing people's phones so that they pick up the scooters at the end of the night, you know, or something. You know what I mean? There's a lot of like janitorial like shit work in the new economy too. Like it's not all just people like trying to like self-actualize. I guess the one reason it might be important, and, and I do think, so So my original point that I was trying to make, maybe not so well, is, is this idea that critiques of neoliberalism can take on the view of neoliberalism itself, of triumphant capitalism running, amok, running riot, like, running amok. It's yeah. like broken all of the leashes of the past. And you're yeah. an historian. I bet you're not so into that. I bet you're like, hey, well, we're underestimating the past. So when it comes to like how to move forward, it's a problem. And, and his idea of how to move forward is idiotism. So he's like the idiot. <laughs> the only way to move back is like a pure imminence. He's talking about Deleuze. It's the last chapter. He's, he's quoting Deleuze a lot. I couldn't really totally understand it, but it's basically... French philosopher. Yeah. The incomprehensibility is the point, like just existing beyond intelligence, beyond systems, beyond anything. So he was, he's saying there's no resources from the past that we can draw on to fight against the predations of neoliberalism. And that to me, very pessimistic, right? So so if what we're living in is utterly distinct and utterly new and so radical, that means that- Just turn your fucking phone off. That's how you fight against it. Yeah. By the way, don't turn your phone off until the podcast is over. (laughs) Yeah. Listen to our content, engage with our content, share and like and rate. Yes, and follow us on Twitter. But yes, uh, also turn off your phone is one way of fighting back, for example. But do you know what I mean? Like he, he can't he can't envision anything within history that would be a that would be a solution to this dilemma that we face because he thinks that we live in a in a period that has basically annihilated history. 
any kind of continuity with our past, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, continuity with the past is always, like, constructed and imagined, and it's always kind of only half true anyway. So, like, I'm not here to say we can, there was continuity and we can recover it. But whatever the fuck the past, you know, the past influence on the present was before, I'm sure that's still possible in some form today. I mean, my go-to for that would just be old-time religion. Of course, this, like, secular, godless European scholar hasn't thought about that. But, you know, I mean, I think that that's why there, there is this post-secular religious turn among a lot of kind of critical theorists as religion having ways of thinking and ways of being that are alternatives to neoliberalism. I mean, that's kind of maybe an easy way out, but, like, at least, it you know, the past did a lot of shit. I don't think we're going to, like, I don't think neoliberalism is so monopolistic and successful that all of human societal history is inaccessible to us now because it just destroyed it. I don't think that's true. Yeah, it kind of seemed like that was what he was trying to say at points, but we'll leave it there.